Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Worry Blog Podcast. And I hope you are enjoying your Monday wherever you are in your summer. If you're like me and school is finishing up, or unlike me and somewhere warm. Either way, summer means baseball and not only just professional, but college has a lot of talent to make any fan excited. One of the people covering that, of course, is joining me this week, and I'm sure you recognize her voice from the intros, but welcome. Uh, Chris Button, I'm a sideline reporter and host for ESPN. I mainly cover college football, college basketball, and college baseball, um, and a few other things in between, um, but have been at ESPN for, what, this is, I'll be going this August will mark six years now, um, which has seemed to fly by. But um, I guess when you're now 37 years old, you know, I, I didn't get to ESPN until I was um, 30, 31, spent 10 years in local news and uh, now living in North Dallas uh, with my husband. And I have a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter who uh, managed to keep alive in between uh, running off to events every weekend. So you kind of touched on coming from local news to ESPN Now. How did you get to that point? Because that's kind of what I want to do. But how do you get from being kind of a local name to really a national name on every week television? Yeah, um, well, I'll say there's different paths, um, especially now that there's way more stuff digital, um, all the different regionals, the, the schools are doing so much more. Back when I started, I mean, local news was the route that everyone took. And for me, I spent two years in Charlottesville, six years in Knoxville, and um, I had opportunities to leave Knoxville a couple times for things that would have been bigger markets, but really lateral in terms of money and just decided to stay in Knoxville and really hone my craft. And, um, I had an agent at the time. And what's funny is I had applied to a station in Boston, uh, to be their number two weekend sports anchor. And when I, when they put me back in the taxi to the head of the airport, they said, we love you, study your Boston sports, we're gonna hire you. And so in my mind, I was going to Boston. I had previously interviewed for Fox in LA to do NFL sidelines and never heard back. So I'm like all pumped that I'm gonna get this Boston job. And two days later, my agent calls back and she says, the owner of the station doesn't like your look. Uh, And so I was crushed. And then like a week later, I actually heard back from Fox again. I had interviewed four months previous and just never heard anything. So um, that was my step into regional national. What what, one thing that people don't realize, you know, in in local news, I mean, that's a full-time job, comes with benefits. You know, it's a lot in terms of one-man banding. But when you take the leap to go to a regional national network, most of them aren't full-time jobs. I mean, even at ESPN, I wasn't full-time until three years into it. So I had to piece to get, they offered me an 11 game contract, which is not a livable wage. Um, There would have been no benefits, no insurance. And I took a leap of faith. I was living with my fiance now husband at the time. And he was willing to say, you know, if, if, 
if you don't find anything else, you know, like I'll help support you. And I don't know if I hadn't had that support, would it have been as easy of a decision? Um, so I took that 11 game contract and then put that together with doing the San Diego Padres and working for Fox Sports San Diego. And that made it a year round job. And I just built that up. I, I, I had enough confidence in myself that if I knew I did those 11 games, it would build into something. But that's a big leap of faith when that's 11 games is your only guarantee. Yeah, you said kind of about that they didn't like your look. Is that pretty common or was that more common then still happening? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty common for them to be that honest about it. Um, what's strange is I'm now friends with the person who did get that job and she's blonde hair and blue eyes. And so, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, I think sometimes, yeah, you know, it wasn't that particular case. But there's a lot of times, that people, you know, they want diversity. So if there already is someone blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, before it used to be there could only be one female in a local news sports department. You know, we weren't going to have two of them. So I would always look at a station and be like, oh, if there's a female there. Well, you know, they're not going to hire two of them. That's starting to change. And you're seeing more female sports directors. But I mean, you will have, you know, they, they don't always tell you to your face, but you know, that's what the agent buffer is for to then to take some of that criticism. You said that it was a pretty quick turnaround that you heard around, heard back from Fox, but what kind of went through your mind when you heard that initially? And how did you kind of get out of a rut in a sense of like, not letting that hold you back? Oh, there's a video of it. I am sitting on my couch and my husband, took his phone and is like recording me with like splotchy face and six chins crying. And in the video, I'm like, I want to stick my head in a garbage disposal. Uh, so, I mean, it was, it sucked for, for two to three days. And then you realize like, that's not the place I'm supposed to be. You want to be at a place that wants you, you know? And I say this to people growing up, like there's a lot of no's that you get. I still get no. I've, I've, you know, I'm at ESPN and I've, auditioned for other jobs and been turned down. You're not ever going to always be someone's cup of tea. And in this business, it really, it just takes one person saying yes. I mean, my first job, I applied 50 places. I got turned down by law in Oklahoma because they didn't want a female driving at night. You know, it took Charlottesville, Virginia saying yes to open the door. So there are a lot of no's, but it only takes one person to change your path. What do you think was the biggest thing you've learned or just up until your career at this point that you wish you would have known going in or you kind of heard a hard way? Yeah, one thing maybe I didn't realize and appreciate local news is how far those relationships go. Because now when I do a game, I might not see that coach for another three years, just the nature of covering things on a national basis. Um, the, the relationships that I built with coaches and administrators and sports information directors um, from my six years in Knoxville still pays dividends. You know, the basketball SID is still the same. You know, I covered Philip Fulmer as a football coach's final year and then was interviewing him as an athletic director. So I wish I had paid more. You know, I have great connections with them, but I really wish that during that time I focused more on that because it's such a small business that even if those people move, like Bruce Pearl I covered at Tennessee, and then I covered him winning an SEC championship at Auburn at ESPN. So you don't realize like how deep and how long you'll continue to use those relationships. I remember about, actually about a year ago today, I started listening to your podcast or the 
originally live sessions, really the sideline reporter stuff. How much have you learned within that year and that you probably wouldn't have learned before if everything wasn't virtual or sports hadn't stopped in the first place? Yeah, well, first of all, like I just, you know, we started it with with Molly and Allison as a way to, you know, we get questions all the time. How'd you get there? What's your biggest piece of advice? And it's hard to take the time to, um, you know, do that on a daily basis. So we were like, well, let's just start a show and where everyone will be able to see it. And while people may have learned a lot from us, I've learned tenfold from Molly and Allison, because we don't really get a chance, you know, on a weekly basis to talk through things or this interview went this way. Could it have done this? We usually do that once a year at a seminar. So that was really rewarding to me to, to be able to pick their brains. We have our colleagues on, um, get what their lives were like, how their journeys started. And honestly, like, like the Zoom thing, sometimes, you know, it, it sucks. Sometimes it's great. You know, when we do college football, most of the times we do uh, away teams just on a conference call. So you never really get that face-to-face -face or player calls. Like that was always over the phone. Now that everyone is so used to Zoom, like now I can have this kind of conversation with someone and they're really willing to be more open when they can see your face versus just on a conference call. So while... There have been some negatives to Zoom, and now everything is a Zoom instead of a conference call. For my job, when I need someone to open up to me, it's actually been easier. You talked about Molly and Allison, and I wanted to make sure I asked about this, but Molly, I think she really posted, this kind of got backlash about her being pregnant and doing the sideline stuff, but you touched on that you have two kids what is it like and like how did you go about having kids and being on camera as well yeah i mean i wouldn't say that i was the picture perfect example because i hid my first pregnancy because i was so insecure of how people would perceive me you know when you get into this business as a female way more so back in you know when i started this 12 or so years ago it was you know, the person that's the prettiest, you know, the skinniest, the youngest, like that's what I thought the job, people's perception of the job was. And when you're pregnant, you feel anything but those things. And so I hit it on social media. I hit it on air um, until after my son was born. And, you know, not that I'm ashamed of doing that, but that's just how I felt at the time. And what I really wish I realized was that I was hired for my skill and not my looks. And then by the time I had my second one, I was like, well, who cares? Everyone already knows I'm old anyways. So, you know, that changed. But I also think, you know, when I went through it, my oldest is five. Allison's is one. Molly has a newborn. There weren't tons of women um, in my, in this industry that were also moms. I mean, I looked up to Shannon Spake and to Sam Ponder, but like they were really some of the few that I knew. Now we have this like this tribe. And so it's, you know, you can bounce things off of each other. At the time with Jace, I felt very much alone in it. And by the time my second one came along, I felt like I had this little community. How exactly did those conversations go with your producers and directors in terms of, did you have to, I mean, I'm sure you had to tell them I'm pregnant. How do you do? You hide those in camera shots and that kind of thing. Yeah. So my first one I planned around baseball season. So when I was super, super pregnant, it was off season anyways. Um, but you, I had to make sure that 
um, my colleagues didn't talk about it on air. That was the main thing. Um, like Allison hid hers until one day Bruce Pearl in an interview, like talked about her being pregnant. So like you can hide it as much as you want, but you have to make sure that everyone else knows like, let's not talk about it on air. Um, so that and, and, and not wanting people to make comments on social media, that was really, you know, the extent of it. But even go, even in my second one, you know, the directors would be like, how do you want me to shoot you? And I'm always like, well, you know, you'll, you mainly only shoot here up anyways. Um, but I know like that Molly had that discussion. She was like, I don't care. Shoot me however you want. Like, this is who I am. Um, it, it's a lot easier to say that now than it was six years ago, just because of, I think of how far we've come in six years. How do you, what is a piece of advice or something you wish you knew when you graduated college coming into this industry that you know now, but you really didn't know at the time? Um, I don't know. Like you work your butt off trying to get to where you are. Like there's this singular focus of, I want to get to ESPN and I, I want to do this and I want to cover these events and every thing you plan along the way is to get to there. And then you get there and then you're like, Oh, but now I need to try and figure out my personal life. And I never, that never was a thought to me. And how do I manage having a family in a career? And I was just like, I'll figure it out when I get there. I think it's interesting. I'm asked so much more about it now by younger women. Um, so it's, it's a thought to them now. I would also say like, it's okay to mess up. You know, like I did a couple Kentucky Derby highlights in Knoxville. And I said that the horse, um, she broke her leg and, uh, I said she had to be immunized instead of euthanized. And there was all these like local blogs about how, thank goodness, Chris Button didn't let the horse get chicken pox, you know, but like those things make you stronger. And I made those mistakes in Knoxville in front of not nearly as many people. There's this desire of, I want to get to ESPN. I want to get to a national sports scene. If take the time to get there. Cause if you get there too early and you make mistakes and you do it in front of a national audience, like those things live forever nowadays. So it's okay to make the mistakes and build your craft and take the time to get there. You'll be so much more appreciative when you finally do. If you don't mind me asking at all, how exactly did you meet your husband? Because you touched on the personal stuff. And so I just want to ask about that. Yeah, um, I say it's very Real Housewives of Knoxville. Um, I met him taking a tennis lesson from him. Uh, he played at University of Tennessee and was a uh, instructor at a racket club. And I played tennis growing up. And when you work in local news, like you work two to midnight. So I was like, well, I'll get back to playing tennis and uh, met him taking a tennis lesson. And so since then, we're very much a tennis family. Like we followed his career to Pepperdine. You know, I left the Padres really to follow his career um, so that he could coach the women's team at Pepperdine. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's been awesome. The one thing I will say is like, find someone who supports your dreams as much as you want your dreams. And he was willing to move across the country and you know, it takes care of the kids every weekend when I'm gone. It takes a person who's willing to do that to make it work. How are those, like, Tennessee, those SEC games now with <laughs> both of you guys? Well, okay, so he doesn't consider Mizzou to be a big threat. He says that um, only after Mizzou beat them the first four times since Mizzou joined the SEC. The hard part of being married to a Tennessee fan is just, like, it's been a decade 
of like just dysfunction. And so the bad, there's been a lot of broken things around the house. Thankfully, I'm not here on Saturdays to witness <laughs> it, but I would like Tennessee to be good for my own sanity because uh, there's a lot of orange in this household. <laughs> How exactly, what encouraged you to go into sports? Because like you said, there wasn't a lot of people to look up to at the time. Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to be a news reporter. Like Growing up, my godfather was uh, the main anchor at the ABC station. And so I grew up shadowing him. You know, I'd turn on the TV and I'd put the closed captioning on to practice reading a teleprompter. And so that was always the goal. And so I went to Mizzou. And in your junior year, you decide basically what your capstone is going to be. Are you going to go news? Are you going to be a producer, investigative reporting, or there's a sports uh, class? And I'm someone who takes my work home with me. And I felt like covering hard news every day, like I would just have trouble, like standing outside of a fire or a murder scene or something like that every single day. And really what I love doing is telling human interest stories. And in sports, it gives you that much more of an opportunity. And I've always been an athlete. My whole family's into sports. And so it was really just kind of a natural um, kind of decision for me to make. And once I did it and I was on the field for Chiefs games and Rams games back in the day when the Rams were in St. Louis and I was at Mizzou, like being able to witness that and hold a camera on the sidelines, like then it would just, it stuck with me. So what would be, because I go to Arizona State and I feel like, honestly, I'm more prepared for anything, even if I were to graduate right now. But no one really talks about that bridge from when you graduate to getting a job, kind of that awkward in between. What's your biggest piece of advice for someone going through that period of time? I mean, again, it takes one yes. I, it took six months for me to after graduating, and I answered phones at the news station and edited. Like, be versatile. Like, I went to that first station, and it was a triopoly. It was an ABC, a CBS, and a Fox station. And so we had a 5, a 5.30, a 6, a 6.30, a 7, a 10, and competing 11 o'clock. So if you were the only anchor that day or reporter, like, you had to do it all. So be versatile, you know, expect to make no money. Like I remember telling my dad, they said, oh, your first job, you're going to make $17,000. And I was like in ignorance. I was like, oh, that's great. And my dad was like, uh, I've paid for you for 21 years. I'm going to tell you right now, you can't live off $17,000. And he was right. I built up a lot of credit card debt and it took years to pay off. But like all again, like all of that hard work and you know, eating ramen and drinking Franzia while living with four people and working until two o'clock in the morning, like all of that, then when you get to where you want to be, like you look back on it and you're like, I'm so appreciative of all those years because like I can edit, I can shoot, I can produce, you know, like I've done all those things. So now in the position that I am, I have an appreciation for the camera guy, I have appreciation for what's going on in the truck and when to and not to talk to a producer because I've filled all those roles working, you know, as a one man band at a local news station. So what I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Um, how exactly would you have changed anything? I guess, looking back on your career, like you said, you left the job at the Padres to go follow your husband's career. Do you regret that at all? You know, I, it's like, I feel like sometimes everything plays out like it's supposed to. That was hard. You know, I left the Padres and I was um, 
six months pregnant. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, I've been really successful. Someone will hire me in LA. And I had a hard time finding, a, you know, I was still doing some stuff with Fox, but it wasn't a full gig. Um, and then, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to get my foot in the door at ESPN and do 25 games with them. Um, I'm not sh quite sure I, I regret it because one thing with marriage is like, it's a give and take. He came with me to San Diego and to fulfill my dreams. I didn't want to sit here years from now and think that he didn't fulfill his. Um, but there are sacrifices. Like we both left LA cause we needed to be closer to family because of our travel schedule. Um, so I don't know if there's anything that I regret. It was definitely tough and uh, I had a lot more confidence in myself than maybe I should have. I don't know how to say that, Craig. Like, I just assumed that there would be another job, you know? And so it was a, it was a tough year of trying to find something else. Um, but again, like when you look at the way that, you know, the path ended up taking me and ended up being, you know, kind of the perfect step. Okay. Like just a lighter question. Do you have a favorite sports season to cover? on the sidelines specifically? Uh, I love the role that college football is for a sideline reporter in terms of like, you are the eyes and ears that no one else can get. Um, and so your prep is so much different. I also love college baseball season because it's so much more laid back. Like you can just sit in a dugout and talk to players and there's just a like an, an ease about it. And you build these connections that are a lot harder in college football because of the grind. So those are my two probably favorite. Not that I don't like college basketball. There's just, you know, the role itself though in college football, um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I think there's a, much bigger appreciation for it now when things happen on a field and if there's not someone there you know like people used to think like oh you're just telling feature stories and especially in covid when you could hear everything because there weren't fans uh, it was a pretty interesting year do you miss it's it more of a struggle i guess with all the zoom things that you don't like i covered a lot of baseball this past semester for asu but I really liked how genuine kind of the guys are just, they don't have much of a mask on, not literally, but figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but is there that kind of personal exchange that makes it harder as a sideline reporter for your role? Um, and since we're doing all over zoom, not, not as much. I will say what's hard is, um, when you're on location and you still have to be six feet apart or like, you know, or if I can't get within 25 feet of the court, like that stuff can be kind of challenging. But I will say like, I did the American conference basketball tournament and my location was probably 30 feet from the court. And we had to do interviews with headset and like this in a two box. And I actually found the interviews easier because at halftime, I didn't have this like seven foot man standing over me being like pissed that he has to do this interview because he wants to go get into the locker room. Like, because I was 30 feet from him, like I felt like I could ask whatever I want. So there's parts of this year that I actually did like. Now I'll be excited. You know, I'll do Omaha for um, the NCAA baseball tournament. And my location is really right next to the dugout. So I'm interested to see like, how that works as things like start to loosen up because usually like I can hear and see so much from where I am. That's been the really tough part is like not being able to be courtside and listen to conversations and stuff. So I'm hoping, you know, by the time Omaha comes around, I'll be able to be a little bit closer.
how do you determine when you hear, I mean, especially I'm sure with fan, without fans in the stands, you can hear everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do you determine to filter, this is what the audience needs to hear, and this is something that needs to stay here? <laughs> Yeah, most of it I just is free go unless it's uh, a play call, you know, nothing that you want to give another team advantage. But like I did a, a report one time where quarterback was struggling, was backup quarterback, and he was getting confused on on um, the play calls. And so they said, okay, we're going to cut this, 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 and this. So I edited the report to say they cut out half the playbook so we could understand. I didn't say what plays they were. And honestly, like most of that stuff you wouldn't be able to understand anyways because they have their own coded stuff. But like if it's fiery language, you know, I'll say as, as much as I can legally allowed to say on air, you know, and bleep out some words or paraphrase something, you know, it's not my job to protect um the coaches and honestly like if there's a camera on them like you can see what they're saying anyways so what yeah. is the hardest coach to interview or what is the hardest interview for you to do oof um bobby petrino is always hard um he's just he's just it's just his nature like he doesn't love the interviews um who you who else is hard? Um, Coach Calipari is hard on you at the beginning. And then once you build a relationship with him, he becomes a lot easier. But he's a guy that, like, you kind of know you can't box into a corner. You kind of have – he's going to take the interview wherever he wants to go, so you kind of leave it open-ended. Um, the more you do these, like, the more you start to understand the personalities. It's always the ones, like, the first time I'm interviewing them, I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, you, people that are hard to read, most of them, like – if I know that they're like really tough, then you know that going in and you know where you can and cannot go like a cow. It's like the unpredictable ones that I'm like, is he going to be in a bad mood or is he going to be in a good mood that are the toughest? Because I'm sure Dabo Sweeney, like he seems like a very simple interview, very happy guy for the most part. Oh yeah. But um, Nick Saban, that to me would be a very difficult interview because I feel like he's very serious and very, um, no filter. <laughs> he's, um, he's intimidating more than anything. Like, I, I remember being so nervous for the first time that I interviewed him. And I called Laura Rutledge because she had a relationship with him. And I was like, give me all the details. And she's like, honestly, he's a lot nicer than he seems on TV. Um, and so, like, all of my interactions have with him have been great. Where you get nervous is like you don't want to waste his time. And so if you're doing a pregame interview, like he walks the field and then comes back and he's with a security guard. So you always like want to make sure you're like your producer and your director are ready to go once he puts on that headset or once you're right. Because like the last thing you want to do is be like, hold on, we're just you know, we're tying up some things in the truck. Um, another interesting and I have a great relationship with him, but who is tough to read is Tom Herman. Cause sometimes I can't tell like if he's pissed off or like, you know, like sometimes like even coaches, and this is what's hard about Saban. If you're doing like a blowout game, like they could be up 40 points and they always find something to be pissed about. So it's, you know, how do you phrase a question when you're up by 40 that, you know, they're not going to be like, well, no, we play like crap, you know? What is your, if you can choose one, what is your favorite venue? Ooh, uh, this sounds Homer since my husband went to Tennessee, but Neyland Stadium, uh, like when they run out of the tee, there's just like magical moments like that. I love uh, University of Texas. 
Uh, University of Washington Husky Stadium is gorgeous because just the way like the boats come in, uh, I know you asked for one, Oregon, the way that the sound stays in because of the overhangs. That to me, it's like, that's why I love college. People are like, oh, don't you want to do the NFL? I'm like, no, there's such a uniqueness to each college venue, you know, whether it's, you know, enter Sandman at Virginia Tech, like that moment is so cool because like literally the place shakes before they run out. So, um, God, there's so many of them. And I, when I think about them, I think about them as like full capacity. Uh -huh. I really hope that's what we get back to next year. I really hope so. <laughs> Just, is there anything you'd like to add for my listeners to hear? Yeah. Um, I, other than like, don't be discouraged. Like the, the, what I have to deal with now that I that you guys have to deal with at the beginning is all the social media stuff. And, you know, you're like I said, you're not always going to be someone's cup of tea. Um, and so it doesn't bother me anymore, the negativity that I get back. I remember my dad, when I was a junior in college, I overheard him say, I just don't know if she's cut out for this. And I didn't know what he meant at the time. Um, I, but I remember taking that and being like, I'm going to prove him wrong. <laughs> But what I asked him a couple of years ago and he was like, I just meant that like you being one of the only females in the industry at the time, like I didn't, I didn't know if you would be able to take that criticism and it was tough at first, you know, and then social media happens and it's a whole nother thing. And at the end of the day, like, unless I screw up a fact or a mispronunciation, like that, that is warranted. But the rest of it, you know, like if, if you don't like my accent or you don't like my look or you don't like anything else about me, then like, I, I don't, I don't care anymore. Um, because I don't, there's this, like, once you get to where you're supposed to be, there's a confidence that comes with that, um, that you don't have at the beginning and that's okay. Um, but once you have the confidence, like it's a lot easier to not care about the naysayers and the, and the trolls that you get. Well, thank you so much for taking time to come on. Of course. And thank you, my loyal listener from Olivia Eisenhower, the host of the Where We Belong podcast. I can't wait for you to hear the guest next week, next Monday, of course. And make sure to follow on Instagram, the Where We Belong pod, to keep up to date on all the happenings. Have a great rest of your week and be kind to one another.